Attention! This makes absolutely no sense. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sanders Facts. Hello, everybody. Welcome into the latest edition of the Xander's Facts podcast. I am, of course, the aforementioned Xander. It is Wednesday, March 29th, 2023, episode 9999, the big 99 of the podcast. How about that? 99 episodes of the Xander's Facts podcast. We're almost to the century mark. Next week, we'll get there. It's a big podcast, though, episode 99. You don't want to skip it because we are talking about three, three major things this week on the podcast this week we are talking about the cure to all our energy problems maybe nuclear fusion i'll explain more in just a second and also we're talking about basketball specifically college basketball specifically the final four because in the men's game there's four teams left but also in the women's game there's also four teams left the final fours are this weekend and I'm going to break them down for you. Tell you who's going to win on this week's edition of the Zaders Facts Podcast. So you might want to stick around for that. But before we get to all our facts for this week, I just wanted to remind you all that if you like the Zaders Facts Podcast, if you think you're going to like all the facts on this week's edition, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, episode 99, rate and review the podcast, then go on all your socials. We got Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok for now. Oh my gosh, we might have to talk about that on this podcast too. At Sanders Facts, that is Xander with a Z. And most importantly, remember to tell all your friends. We like to call it around here, spread the facts. Sanders Facts Podcast. Tell all your friends about the podcast, about the Xander's Facts newsletter. It's called Xander's Weekend Facts. It comes out every Sunday morning. It's got a recap of the week's top headlines so you will not miss a fact from the past week. It's free. Sign up. In this episode's description, and the Xander's Facts link tree has all the Xander's Facts links that you need. It's also linked to this episode's description. That includes the link for Xander'sFacts.com, which is the Xander's Facts website, which houses the Xander's Facts shop. In case you wanted to get your facts swag, go to Xander'sFacts.com. Because it's cool. We got a lot of facts to get to this week, so I wanted to first start with our main topic for the week, which is nuclear Fusion. You probably heard about it because in the news a couple months ago, it was all over the news. And it could be the cure to all our energy problems. Maybe. But you probably have a lot of questions, and I do too, so I'm going to answer them here on this week's podcast. But a couple months ago, as I said, news came out about basically this incredible scientific discovery. Well, not really a discovery, but a breakthrough that took place in California, specifically the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. Scientists there were able to achieve this thing called fusion ignition, which is the process of creating more energy from fusion reactions than the energy that was used to actually complete the process. This was basically an accomplishment that was decades in the making. Congratulations. This national laboratory had been open for decades. They've been trying to do this at several places around the world for decades. And finally, last year, we were able to achieve fusion ignition. Now, that was the big news, but what does it actually mean? How did it actually happen in the first place? Is this actually going to affect our lives anytime soon? 
Those are some questions you probably have regarding nuclear fusion, and I did too, which is why I found all the facts regarding nuclear fusion, and I'm here to answer all your questions with some facts, because I'm going to give you a little hint that nuclear fusion, this could be big for society. Bold move there. So let's talk about nuclear fusion this week on the Zaders Facts Podcast, episode 99, and let's start by basically explaining what nuclear fusion is. You've probably heard of something else called nuclear fission before, which is where a neutron, if you all know back from, what was it, atoms I learned about in like 8th grade or something, you have to hark in your memory all the way back to then. We're talking about neutrons, we're talking about atoms. Nuclear fission is where a neutron slams into a larger atom, which causes the larger atom to split into two smaller atoms. This is basically how we got nuclear bombs. It's what powered the two nuclear bombs that were dropped on Japan in World War II. And they also power the most common type of nuclear reactor today, which brings us the nuclear energy that we have and that we use today. But that's different from what we're talking about today, which is nuclear fusion, not fission, F-I-S-S-I-O-N. We're talking about fusion, F-U-S-I-O-N. The difference between the two is that in a nuclear fusion reaction, two light nuclei merge with each other. They don't cause a separation. They merge with each other to form one larger nucleus. And this is actually the type of reaction that powers stars like the sun, which gives us light, which we love. Really? Energy is created from these reactions because the total mass of the nucleus that is created is actually less than the combined mass of the two smaller nuclei that merged. So that leftover mass becomes energy. This is a fact. So there you go. It all sounds so simple, right? Podcast over. We've achieved it. We're done. Goodbye. Sadly, that is not the case. It really isn't that simple. So don't leave the podcast. We're not done yet. We've been trying to create these reactions for decades to basically no avail. We haven't had the power, basically, or the scientific knowledge to be able to do so. Basically, having an excess amount of energy left over from these reactions. Well, all that changed back in December of last year, 2022, when scientists at the National Ignition Facility, which is located at that Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in Livermore, California, were finally able to create an excess amount of energy from a nuclear fusion reaction. So how exactly did that process work in the first place? Well, first off, you probably need to know about the NIF, which is the National Ignition Facility. It houses the world's largest and most energetic laser. It cost, when it was built back in the 1990s, nearly three and a half billion, with a B, dollars, all with the goal for studying high-energy, high-density conditions like a nuclear fusion reaction. Since then, the NIF tried many times to achieve ignition, getting more energy out than was put in. But every time, it failed, until just a few months ago. Because on December 5th, 2022, 192 total lasers shot out with a power that is over 1,000 times greater than the entire national power grid. That's a lot of numbers. I mean, like, y'all, that's insane. The laser shot used two units of energy and 
what came out was three units of energy, or megajoules. That was the first time ever that that had happened. That ignition had been created by humans. So as I said, this is how the sun and other stars are created, from that energy. So we kind of made our own little sun. But it was really small. It only lasted for less than a hundred trillionths of a second, which is very quick. That means it happened like a hundred trillion times a second or whatever, which is very fast, which is faster than I'm talking right now. Duh. It took a nearly 10-story, multi-billion dollar facility filled to the brim with these massive lasers to get it done with power that is over a thousand times greater than the entire national power grid. But it happened, which is absolutely insane. It's a huge, remarkable achievement in the world of science. But what does it all mean? What does it mean for us? Because that's the question we're all really asking, right? I mean, scientists were awed and they were amazed by this announcement. But what exactly does this all mean? What can nuclear fusion do for us? Good question. Well, for those questions, I have good answers because the possibilities are literally endless. I mean, it's it's kind of hard to actually comprehend, but nuclear fusion could actually solve like a ton of the problems we face in the world today because when we're able to achieve fusion at a massive scale, we'll have unlimited clean energy because right now, we all know this, we talked about it on the podcast before, the world is using non-renewable energy resources like coal and oil to power everything we use. And we know that that has two really big issues. Number one, they're kind of dirty, so they're killing the planet. And number two, they're non-renewable, which means once we use them, they're gone. And we keep using them, and we know that someday, and this day could come up soon, we're going to run out of them all. And also, as I'll say again, they're very bad for the planet because the latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change said that global average temperatures in the first half of the 2030s are estimated to rise by 1.5 degrees Celsius, that's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels. It's the truth. Which is not very good because the warming of the earth creates a ton of bad things that we've talked about before on the podcast. You should go listen to our past episodes. But of course, we also don't only use things like coal and oil. We also have renewable energy sources, which are picking up steam, literally hydro, nuclear, fission to some extent, but also wind and solar. And we've talked about the benefits of those on this podcast before. But still, at this very moment, their usage levels pale in comparison to the oil and coal that we still use. Nuclear fusion brings us another renewable energy resource, because when we achieve ignition, it doesn't pollute, and it produces very little, if any, radioactive waste, unlike with nuclear fission, as I just said. With fission, we've had things like Chernobyl, and Three Mile Island, and these have been disasters that have not been too good. You don't get these dangers, basically, which have done harm to our environment with nuclear fusion. So, no runaway reactions. Plus, 
we can consider it to be renewable because all we need, along with the massive machines, which I'm going to talk about in a second, are heavy hydrogen atoms, which can be found abundantly in seawater. So, if we can find the capabilities, fusion could be found in almost unlimited quantities. That means that the amount of energy we have could be almost endless. Whoa. You know, so obviously, we talk about wind and solar and hydro, and these are great things, but they all have their limitations. I mean, when it's not windy, you don't pick up energy. When it's not sunny outside, you don't pick up solar energy. So there's limitations to how you can get these. There's limitations to how you can get fusion energy, too, like we need these huge machines to be able to make it happen. But once we have those, we can basically produce it in unlimited quantities as much as we want. So problems that are basically hindered by a lack of energy or clean energy in our world could be solved. That includes, get this, global hunger. I mean, we always joke that we'd like to solve world hunger and all that stuff, but fusion could actually do that in a way, because actions that take enormous amounts of energy like planting and producing and farming all this food that we need for the global population takes a lot of energy. And obviously there's other things that go into this too, but having unlimited quantities of nuclear fusion, of having energy, could be one step to helping that problem. Another problem could be drinking water, because another action that takes enormous amounts of energy is desalinating ocean water into fresh water that can be used for common uses, like drinking or bathing or whatever have you. You know, we could also do that if we had unlimited amounts. The reason why, especially in the West Coast of the United States, where droughts have been all over the place, even though there's been a lot of snow and rain this winter, but over the past few years, and for a while, droughts have been a major issue in the West, in the United States, because they don't have a lot of water, and now they have to conserve water. Well, if we can actually get water from the ocean and turn it into fresh water, right, right now we can't do that on large quantities because it takes a ton of energy. If we had unlimited energy, that wouldn't be an issue. And I don't really see the downside to it because the sea levels are literally rising. Like, we have too much water in the ocean, to be honest, now. Because pretty soon our cities are going to be underwater on the coast, and that's not going to be good. Whoops. So obviously, if we have unlimited amounts of energy from nuclear fusion, that could help. I mean, it could allow for solutions to these massive problems and also, you know, just simply provide an energy source that can replace coal and oil. So in that sense, it could also provide a solution to the major problem of pollution and damaging the environment and actually trying to achieve net zero emissions. Because that's always talked about as a goal for companies and countries and everybody, but right now, you know, we're not getting much closer to that goal than we were. Obviously, having nuclear fusion, unlimited clean energy would definitely help speed up that process. And obviously, there's a ton of other things in this world, problems that could be solved by unlimited energy. Now, we can't solve all problems, like things I don't want to get into on this podcast this week, but there's a lot of things that it can. Like, think of a problem where the solution is we need more energy. Well, there you go. Nuclear fusion's your answer. A lot of other things that I didn't mention. 
here on this podcast. So the benefits of nuclear fusion, I think, are massive, huge breakthroughs for society. It's amazing. Oh, my gosh. But let's hold our horses here for just a second. We've achieved this monumental breakthrough. It's amazing. But there's still a long way to go in order to actually be able to even use nuclear fusion as an energy source. Because if we go back to that December laser shot, which is the only time in history as of Wednesday, March 29th, 2023, that we've achieved ignition, it only produced enough energy to power about 15 to 20 kettles like you put on the stove. Do better. That in you know, the grand scheme of things is not that much. And so obviously we need to produce a lot more energy. But in order to even take that shot, a tiny target, barely large enough to see, barely large enough to see in the palm of your hand, it's super tiny, needs to be created. It's a little hollow target shell, and the scientists load it with hydrogen at negative 430 degrees and it also needs to be perfectly round or else you're not going to get ignition so the shell is formed out of diamonds and the national ignition facility says that it builds around 1500 of them a year and it gets about 150 of them perfect which means they can use about 150 of them that's just one of the challenges that we have in order to be able to actually produce more energy Another challenge is that the facility takes about one shot per day. In a commercial power plant, there would need to be about 10 shots taken per second. And of course, more energy would need to be produced about like 100 times more if we were going to be operating a commercial nuclear fusion power plant. Seriously? That also means that if they kept going with the diamond shells... They need about 900,000 perfect diamond shells every single day, which doesn't seem attainable at the moment. And if you actually look at everything that allowed the lasers to fire, it actually took not three units of energy, but it took 300 total units of power to fire the lasers, to actually get the lasers going. Because, the yes, the lasers did emits or produce two units of energy and what came out of that was three units of energy but to power the lasers it took 300 total units of power so technically we still haven't totally produced more energy than we used to produce that energy if you get what I'm saying. So, you know, for decades, scientists have joked that fusion's going to be here in 10 years, it's going to be here in 20 years, 30 years, that it's coming soon. I mean, and while the simple fact of ignition is a monumental step, scientists acknowledge that there is still a long way to go. Now, the Biden administration, when that was announced, said they have a goal of having commercial fusion power within a decade. Are you sure? But scientists were like, really? I hate to break it to you, but there is no way that that is happening. Not achievable. They say it could be decades before fusion is ultimately commercially viable, where we can use it at a mass scale. Although in 20 years' time, there's absolutely a chance that fusion begins producing energy on a mass scale. We've gotten to the point now 
where the science is achievable, now we just have an engineering problem. Now we just have to make, if we're going to go the shell route, we have to make a lot of those little tiny shells. We're going to need to be able to build more of these lasers and produce a lot more energy. But the U.S. government and other governments around the world are behind this project, and so are some of the biggest companies from around the world, like Google. These companies, just in the last year, have invested billions of dollars into this, so they believe in it. So it's no longer a matter of if we can achieve commercial fusion energy. We're now at the point where we know we can. It's just a matter of when we can. Science is going to continue to improve, and hopefully so are our engineering capabilities in the next few decades or so, and hopefully, I know I'm talking decades, or like, Sander, that's super long, we need something now, and I know we need something now, because as I said, 2035 or 20, whatever, 2030s, we're going to be at one and a half degrees Celsius before industrialization times which is really bad, and that's climate change right there and sea level rise, and we'd like to actually be able to use the seawater to produce drinking water, but sadly, we're not there yet. I mean, to wrap it up, fusion could ultimately change our world, and I think it is going to change our world when it's commercially viable, but we're going to have to wait just a little bit. Just, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Hold your horses. Because when you actually take a second, lean back, close your eyes, think about it, unless you're driving or doing whatever, don't close your eyes, and think about what has actually been done here, it's really nothing short of astonishing. Fusion is going to be the future, and it's going to have a huge benefit in our lives. And ultimately, I don't think it's really going to have many negatives. The only question is, when is this going to happen? Hopefully I answered your questions of what this is, how did it happen, but the big question that no one really knows, we can only give educated guesses, is when is this going to happen? That's the question I don't know. That's the question we're going to keep asking, but it's going to take probably a couple, couple years or so for us to know the answer. But really, I'm just excited to know that this is all coming. That nuclear fusion, that basically unlimited clean energy, that a solution to some of the biggest problems we have on this globe, and there's a lot of problems that it, it won't solve, but there's some that it will, and that's just pretty cool to think about. The future. Debatable. Exciting times, let me tell you. So that's basically my little spiel on nuclear fusion. Get excited, y'all, because it's coming. Maybe it'll take a minute. But it is coming. Make no mistake about it. If you say so. So that's fact topic number one on this week's edition of the podcast, episode 99. Let's go to our other facts we have this week, where we transition into sports, and specifically basketball, and even more specifically, college basketball. Because if you could believe it, we're at the end of March. And March means madness. And since we're at the end of March, that means the conclusion of the madness. We've made it to the end of the college basketball season. Just four teams remain in the quest for a national championship. And for the men, this may have been one of the wildest editions of March Madness we've ever seen. The four teams that made it to the Final Four in Houston on the men's side are number nine, Florida Atlantic, number five, Miami, number five, San Diego State, 
and number four UConn. That's right, no number three seeds, no number two seeds, no number one seeds. The lowest seed is a four seed. It's the first time since they started seeding the tournament back in 1979 that no number one seeds actually even made the Elite Eight, the regional final round, the round before the Final Four. In fact, number one seeds had won the last five national championships. And this is going to be the first Final Four since 2011 where there is no number one seed. That was actually the last time as well that no number one or number two seeds were in the Final Four. And this is the first time ever that the lowest seed in the Final Four is a number four seed. Too many facts. So college basketball's crowning event begins this Saturday, and it concludes Monday night. So it is time to break down the matchups and announce who is going to win the NCAA Division I Men's Basketball National Championship. We're going to get to that in just a second. But let me just tell you all something we've never talked about on the podcast before in 99 episodes. The men aren't the only ones who will soon be crowning a champion because the women's Final Four is also set to tip off on Friday. Gash facts. And there is one very, very, very special team participating for the first time ever this year, which I am hype about. If you don't know, I'm going to tell you about it in a second. So we're going to talk about this week, the men's Final Four and the women's Final Four in college basketball. And we're going to be crowning some champions. So let's get to it. We're going to start with the men, though. The men's Final Four, which takes place at NRG Stadium in Houston, the home of the Texans. It's the fourth time that Houston is hosting the Final Four. It's the first time also they're doing it since 2016. Now, the first matchup of the Final Four is going to take place this Saturday at 6.09 p.m. Eastern. Set your alarms. The South Regional Champion, number five seed San Diego State, will face the East Regional Champion, the number nine seed, Florida Atlantic. How about that? A five seed is taking on a nine seed in the Final Four. Let's start with San Diego State because their incredible defense is what has brought them to this point. The Aztecs are the first team ever from the Mountain West Conference to make the Final Four. They didn't make it without a little controversy, though. At the end of their Elite Eight matchup with Creighton, there was a foul called on Creighton with just over a second remaining, which gave San Diego State a win at the free throw line by one point. But they also took down this year's number one overall team, Alabama, in the Sweet 16, the most popular national champion choice, I believe, not by Xander. Even though I had the last two national champions correctly in my national champ, we'll talk about it in a second when the team who beat them supposedly gets up. We'll talk about it. Oh, yay. But with San Diego State, Matt Bradley leads the Aztecs with 12.5 points per game, but Darion Trammell and Lamont Beltler have also come up clutch in this tournament for San Diego State. They are facing the Owls of Florida Atlantic, a nine seed, probably the closest thing to a Cinderella out of the four teams, but I don't think I would qualify them as that because they were ranked in the AP poll before the tournament began. And if you're ranked in the AP poll, I feel like you're nationally recognized and maybe not a Cinderella. I don't think anybody picked him to be here, but Cinderella category, I don't know. And I mean, I don't want to, you know, hate on him, but there's also the fact that Florida Atlantic as a nine seed didn't have to face a one seed or a two seed because instead of a one seed, they had Fairleigh Dickinson in their bracket. And if you didn't know, Fairleigh Dickinson became just the second ever 
16 seed to beat a one seed when they beat Purdue. And so Florida Atlantic played Fairly Dickinson. And Fairly Dickinson played another great game. They just couldn't beat the Owls. But then Florida Atlantic had to get past the nation's best defense in Tennessee, who basically handled Duke in the previous matchup. And they also had to survive a juggernaut in Kansas State. The Owls have been excellent basically all around in the tournament. And they're very deep, which I love because that is a great characteristic for an NCAA tournament team to be deep. It's what gets you to the Final Four because you don't get tired, basically. When your starters get tired, you put in your bench players and you don't worry because they usually play well. And Florida Atlantic's nine guys, basically, in their rotation have definitely played well this year. That includes Jonelle Davis, who averages almost 14 points per game. Elijah Martin averages 13 points a game. And Vladislav Golden from Russia averages 10 points a game. Florida Atlantic, the first nine seed to make it to the Final Four since it was Wichita State back in 2013. Remember that. That was a fact. So let's get to my little pick here. I know that's what everyone is waiting for because in this matchup last year, in this first Final Four matchup, I mentioned that Kansas, who was playing in this game, was the team that was the furthest from last playing in the national championship game in 2008. Remember last year's Final Four? Villanova, Kansas, Duke, and North Carolina. Blue Blood Central. This year, that is not the case. Because both of these teams, and Miami, are playing in their first ever Final Four. Florida Atlantic, they've already faced the stout defense in Tennessee, but I've actually got San Diego State because it hasn't just been their credible defense. You also have to have offense, and their offense has been great too in the tournament. So I've got San Diego State eking it out past the Owls to get the win and move on to the national championship game, their first ever San Diego State. How about that? And then in the second matchup of the Final Four, takes place Saturday, 8.49 p.m. Eastern. We've got the Midwest Regional Champion, the number five seed, Miami, Florida, facing the East Regional Champion, number four seed, Connecticut, also known as UConn. Let's start with Miami, though. They were the regular season champions of the ACC, and they beat both the number one seed in their region, which was Houston, and the number two seed in their region, which was Texas, to get here to Houston. They beat two Texas teams to get to Texas for the Final Four. In their matchup against Houston, they scored 89 points. And then, two days later, they beat Texas and they scored 88 points. They've earned their spot here, definitely. After getting to the Elite Eight last year, I said, what was it, two weeks ago, in my Bracket Breakdown podcast, Here we go. That this Miami team might be better than the one that went to the Elite Eight. And clearly I was right. Even though I didn't pick them to go here, because I did pick Texas. And let me tell you, Texas was up by 13 points in that game. And I don't know what happened, but Texas started missing shots, and the refs started calling calls the other way. I don't know. I didn't really account for sidestepping tomfoolery in my bracket. Maybe that was my mistake. I don't know. But either way, Miami's here, and we're just going to have to live with that. Texas 
I know I picked the national champion two years in a row correctly. And it should have been a third. I'm sorry, y'all. Out of my control. But when you take a look at the final four, it's a four seed, it's two five seeds, and it's a nine seed. I mean, we love this tournament because it's not predictable. Because you get these wild, you get a 16 seed who can beat a one seed. You get a team you've never heard of before, UMBC, Fairleigh Dickinson. We had a 15 seed. We all know who Princeton is, but we had a 15 seed advance to the Sweet 16 for like the third year in a row of 15 seeds beating a two seed. And then last year we had St. Peter's who went to the Elite Eight. Like we can do all the analysis and get all the facts we want, but at the end of the day, just lay it out there and say, they call this March Madness for a reason. Because it's crazy and it's unpredictable and no one knows what's actually going to happen. Except for Xander this past two years. But this year, I don't know. Guess not. We'll start a new streak next year. Huh. That's a fact. There you go. But I was talking about Miami because they did beat the team I picked to win the national championship to get here. But I would say they have definitely earned their spot to get here. That's thanks to four guys who average over 13 points per game. Jordan Miller, Norchad O'Meara, Nigel Pack, and Isaiah Wong. Now, you've also got UConn. The Huskies, they didn't claim any team honors like Miami did in the Big East this season, but they looked like one of the best teams of the country at the beginning of the season and then heading down the final stretch of the regular season. And now they have absolutely looked like the best team in this year's NCAA tournament, I would say. It beat its first four opponents in the tournament each time by 15 points or more. They are just the third team in this century since the year 2000 to do that. And in total, their scoring margin through those four games is plus 90, which is insane. That includes beatdowns over Arkansas, who beat the number one team in this region, who was the defending national champion, Kansas Jayhawks. They also beat Gonzaga in the second weekend. Gonzaga, absolutely not a tough out in a year. Adamas Sanogo for the Huskies is the name to know. He averages seven and a half rebounds. It goes along with 17 points per game. And you've also got Jordan Hawkins, who's averaging 16 points a game. And then Alex Caravan and Joey Calcaterra are both averaging over 40% from three-point range this year. If UConn gets in a shootout, I don't see how they lose. I mean, I didn't think Miami would hang with Houston, and they did. I didn't think they'd hang with Texas. And they did. They won both of those games. Now they're in Houston. But they're facing something that I don't think they've seen all year in UConn. So gimme the Huskies pulling it out in a game where UConn does win by less than 15 points for the first time in this tournament. How about that? I've got UConn facing San Diego State in the national championship game. A 5v Four. Let's get to that game because that would be the lowest possible seeding matchup, actually. We could have a 5v9. I think it's going to be a 5v4, though, which would actually tie last year's matchup for total seeding because last year we had a one seed, that was Kansas, but we also had an eight seed, that was North Carolina. So actually, this wouldn't be unprecedented. But last year's Final Four was highlighted by a Duke North Carolina meeting in which Coach K coached this final game. Kansas came back also from the largest deficit ever in the national championship game to win the national championship against North Carolina. This year, the closest thing we have to a blue blood is UConn. 
I mean, they've previously been to the Final Four five times, and they won the championship four times in those five years. I would say that's a pretty good success rate when they get to this stage. Four times you won a national championship, and you've done it, you know, a couple times actually in this century. I think I'd consider you a blue blood. Then you've also got San Diego State. If you didn't know this, back in 2020, we didn't have an NCAA tournament because COVID. And San Diego State was 30-2. and two. They were on the cusp of actually getting a number one seed in that tournament. And then COVID canceled the thing. So this could be the ultimate revenge for the Aztecs by winning the title. Maybe? I don't think so, because in the end, I think that UConn is going to do what they've done to every single team they've faced in this tournament so far and win the game. I've got the Huskies beating the Aztecs and taking home their fifth national championship. How about that? So there you have it, y'all. UConn, the Huskies, are going to win the national championship game. You heard it here first. What happens? You're welcome. Sanders facts? That is the men's Final Four national championship. The national championship takes place on Monday night at... Tip-off time, 9.20 p.m. Eastern. Oh my gosh, every single year they do it at 9.20. It's just ridiculous. Why? I don't know. But I still watch it anyway. Both the Final Four and the National Championship game can be watched on your televisions on CBS. But we're not done with this podcast. Oh, no, no. Here it comes! We are now at the Women's Final Four, which I'm more excited about than the Men's Final Four this year, because I'll tell you why in just a second. The Final Four of the National Championship game for the women are taking place at the American Airlines Center in Dallas, also in Texas. The second time that Dallas is hosting the Women's Final Four, first time since 2017. The first matchup of the Final Four takes place on Friday at 7 o'clock p.m. Eastern. The Greenville number 2 region regional champion, the number 3 seed LSU, faces the Seattle number three region regional champion, the number one seed, Virginia Tech Hokies! How about that? I'm going to talk about my Hokies, let me tell y'all. But we're going to start with LSU and the devil herself, Kim Mulkey. Disrespectful! That may seem a little harsh, but go take a look at a picture of her. And don't tell me that's the devil reincarnated, I don't know. I don't want to be mean, but I'm just saying. Ever since Mulkey left Baylor, though, she won three national titles at Baylor, but she's built LSU back into a powerhouse that is led by Angel Reese, who has an SEC record 32 double-doubles this season. In the NCAA tournament, she's averaging 22.5 points, over 17 rebounds, and almost four blocks a game. The Tigers started the year 23-0, and before their first loss of the season was to South Carolina. Despite a record of 32-2, and they're a three-seed because their non-conference schedule was pretty weak. But you know what? They are in the Final Four, so maybe it did pay off. But now let's eh, forget about LSU. Let's get over to the greatest team in the history of the game of basketball, the Virginia Tech Hokies. All right, you all know I love my Hokies. And the Hokies have steadily improved ever since Kenny Brooks took over as head coach back in 2016. I remember as a youth, as a youngin, watching Kenny Brooks coach James Madison, the Dukes, consistently to the NCAA tournament, and now he's brought Virginia Tech 
consistently to the NCAA tournament. And now they've made it to the program's first ever Final Four. That, including men, first time that either the men or the women have made it to the Final Four in the sport of college basketball. Georgia Amor, who hails from Australia, has been absolutely dominant for the Hokies in this tournament. She has scored over 20 points in every game. But the Hokies also have Elizabeth Kitley, who has a Virginia Tech record 56 career double-doubles, and the Hokies have won 15 straight games coming into this game, the second longest streak in the country. It's a fact. Amor did go down in the first half of Monday's Elite Eight matchup with Ohio State, but she came back to once again drop over 20 points. She dropped 24 on the Buckeyes, including some clutch threes. It doesn't matter what Kim Mulkey wears on the sideline because she likes to fancy her getup. Doesn't matter. Hokies are going to win and move on to their first ever national championship game, men's or women's. How about that? Team of destiny, the Virginia Tech Hokies. Let's go! You're supposed to say Hokies. The second matchup of the Final Four takes place Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern. The Greenville number one region regional champion, number one seed overall in this tournament, South Carolina faces the Seattle number four region regional champion. I don't know what they did with the regions this year. It's all confusing. But South Carolina faces the number two seed, Iowa. The team, I said Virginia Tech has the second longest winning streak in the country. The team that has the first, the longest winning streak belongs to South Carolina, men's or women's. The Gamecocks are 36-0. They have not lost a single game this year, and they won all four of their tournament games by double digits. Their winning streak actually extends 42 games, dating back to last year, because South Carolina are the defending national champions. They beat UConn to win their second national championship in program history. Their head coach is Don Staley, who is basically a legend, not just in the women's game, but really basketball in general. And nearly averaging a double-double, Aaliyah Boston, who hails from the U.S. Virgin Islands, by the way, has been one of the best players in the country this season. But then you have Iowa who also have one of the best players, a star of their own in Caitlin Clark, who in Iowa's Elite Eight win over Louisville had the first 40-point triple-double ever in this tournament. That's cool. That's insane. Clark is a scoring machine. On the year, she averaged over 27 points per game. That's crazy. The Big Ten champions are back in the Final Four for the first time since 1993, finally instilling into reality this vision that head coach Lisa Bluter had when she took the job in Iowa City all the way back in 2000. So in this game, Iowa can score the ball. That could cause South Carolina some problems. At times, the Gamecocks have looked vulnerable in this tournament, but there's also a reason why they're 36-0. So I think that they're going to be able to win their 37th game of the year and advance to their second straight national championship game. So let's talk about that game, which takes place on Sunday, because in the national championship game, I've got South Carolina facing the team of destiny. Virginia Tech, my Hokies, just like I predicted on my bracket online. By the way, 
I know I talked about my bracket for the men's on this podcast. I didn't talk about it on the women's, but it is online. If you go to ESPN Tournament Challenge, whatever, I made one women's bracket, and it has South Carolina and Virginia Tech in the final. Yeah, okay. And it's also in stark contrast to the men, not because my bracket's wrong for the men, but two number one seeds who are likely two of the best, if not the best, teams that we saw in women's college basketball all season. South Carolina, they've looked like the most dominant team all year. There's been talk of a dynasty, dynasty talk, if they can get their third title under Don Staley. They won it last year, of course, but their first national championship was back in 2017. If you remember the fact I gave you earlier, the only time before this that Dallas has hosted the Women's Final Four was also in 2017. True that. I don't know. But let me tell you something about my Hokies. Along with George Amor and Liz Kitley, who combined for 49 points against Ohio State, the Hokies also have two other double-digit scores in Taylor Soul and Kayana Trailer. Plus, Georgia Amor has 23 pointers made in this NCAA tournament. That is just too short of the all-time record, which is currently 22. So she would need three threes, which I think she'll have two games to get them, to get the NCAA tournament record. Cool facts, bro. And so, to decide this game, I went back to my bracket, which is online, ESPN Tournament Challenge. I don't know, you could probably find it. Sanders Facts is what it's called, of course. And I looked at it, and it was South Carolina, Virginia Tech of the final. And to win it, I had, before the tournament started, Virginia Tech. So, I said, am I really going to go against not just my pick, but also, more importantly, my school, my team, my Hokies? Because I do think they have a really good chance to win. I'm not going to bet against them. That's why I have got Virginia Tech, the Hokies, winning their first ever national championship, not just in women's college basketball, but in any NCAA-sanctioned sport. Hokies have won individual titles. They've won individual NCAA titles, just like a few weeks ago in swimming we did, and wrestling we have before, but never a team national championship. But our long nightmare here in Blacksburg is going to come to an end on Sunday afternoon when the Virginia Tech Hokies are rightfully crowned as champions of women's college basketball. How about that? Santa warned you. I mean, wow. Just incredible. I might cry if it happens. I mean, I'd be so happy. My Hokies. The national championship game, if you want to watch Virginia Tech win that game, it's going to take place on Sunday afternoon at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That's when tip is. The final four is going to be on Friday night. You can watch it on ESPN. And the national championship game is going to air live for the first time ever over the air on ABC. So there you have it, y'all. Now y'all know who's going to win the national championships in both men's college basketball and women's college basketball. We got UConn. We got Virginia Tech. Xander's facts. Xander's facts. Oh, man. Some of my all-time favorite facts I've had to relay on the podcast. I don't think I've ever picked Virginia Tech to win 
the national championship on this podcast before, but they're going to do it. And you know it. Get off my plane. Let me just tell y'all, they're special. Xander's facts. So, those are all the facts that I've got on episode 99 of the Xander's Facts podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. And remember that if you liked all the facts that I had on this week's edition of the podcast, I don't know how you wouldn't, remember to follow this podcast, download this episode, episode 99, rate and review the podcast, then go on all our socials, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. I'm on all those at Xander's Facts. That is Xander with a Z. And most importantly, remember to tell all your friends. We like to call it around here. Spread the facts. Xander's Facts Podcast. Tell all your friends about the podcast, about Xander's Weekend Facts, our weekly newsletter. Sign up in the episode description. It is free. You can check out Xander's Facts on YouTube. All our new episodes get posted on there with a video. You can watch the nice background where you're getting all the facts. Oh my gosh, and you can scan all the QR codes that get you all the Xander's Facts links. Oh, it's just so wonderful. Go check out the Xander's Facts YouTube channel. You can also check out the Xander's Facts link tree. It has all the Xander's Facts links that you need for the podcast, for the socials, for the YouTube, for the Xander's Weekend Facts. It's got all the facts that you need. That is episode 99 of the Xander's Facts Podcast. Next week, episode 100, the big century mark. And what we're going to talk about, what we're going to do to celebrate, because it's a big podcast, y'all. I'm going to tell y'all. Tell me, tell me. Next week. You're going to have to tune in. It's a secret. Can't tell y'all just yet, but you might want to tune in next week because it's the big one. Episode 100 of the Xander's Facts Podcast is coming out next Wednesday. Big time podcast. Might want to remind yourself to listen. And every Wednesday morning when we have new podcasts, go check out the Xander's Facts Podcast. So that is it. That is a wrap on episode 99 of the Xander's Facts Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. And the Xander's Facts Podcast rolls on with episode 100 next week. plane.